0: What is up my friends? Welcome to the third episode of the Real Estate Wise Guys. I am Zach Barger and this is my lovely co-host, Sean Weiss. How are we doing today, Sean? I'm doing fantastic. How are you? Just living the dream. How's the real estate biz treating you these days? It's, uh, we're, we're in a different time. So we're, we're experiencing some different things. How about you? I mean, I've been negotiating over the loudest toilet I've ever heard in my life this week on a deal. What uh, L- Loud? The yeah. loudest toilet? It literally sounded like there was a jet inside of this toilet. And uh, the sellers are refusing to replace it because it still works. But, <laughs> Te- technicality. <laughs> <laughs> we are getting to the finish line on this deal, but it has been a fun negotiation period for this deal. There's some that are more fun than others. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. All right. Well, today we have a bunch of listener questions that we're going to jump into. We're really excited about. Thanks for all of our listeners for sending these questions, and we're excited to jump into them. Shall we just get started on that?
1: Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll start with the first one, um, and I'll, I'll throw this one to you, and we can kind of uh, both give our takes on it. This is from Lindsay, and she said, I see that prices are reducing. What's my best play if I want to sell my house? All right. John, are prices reducing? Prices are not reducing. Um, <laughs> by the by the standard and the metrics that we look at, we look at year over year, um, which the numbers for September that came out last week, we saw a increase in the year over year median sales price. It's at 555,000. Um, we have yet to see a decline year over year. What she may be referring to is we're seeing a seasonality decline. So, you know, April, May, when prices were kind of at their peak, and it, we have trended down on a monthly basis but if you look at historical numbers that's true every year the bell curve is a little bit steeper some years than others um, it, the top of that bell curve is a little bit wider than other years but right now obviously we are seeing more of a dramatic fall on that but we are still above last year's prices as of right now And the overall sentiment is we are going to probably finish the year at a positive. So, you know, there's a chance like maybe towards December, we may see get less appreciation year over year, but unlikely to go flat or even zero in 2022. The beginning of next year, if prices continue to slip, then we may see that decline. But we have yet to see that what people are kind of probably hearing is prices have fallen from April. We're seeing price reductions, that sort of thing. But the actual sales that are taking place, homes that are selling now are selling at a higher price than they were a year ago. Um, so that's the first thing to kind of get that out of the way. But that doesn't, she is making the point that it is certainly harder to sell a home right now.
0: Most definitely. Yeah. And the other aspect of that is, is does that mean that I think part of the uh, theme of the question there or the thought process behind the question is, are we going to see prices continue to drop, even though they haven't actually dropped, but there's a sentiment out there that prices are going to go down. So should I sell my house now to make sure that I'm not losing money? I personally feel that for in most cases in Austin and the surrounding areas, six months from now, you might not have a big gain on your house. It might go down a little bit, but the reality is it's probably going to stay pretty level with the chance of going slightly up or slightly down, but long-term Austin and Austin's surrounding markets it's a good place to be a homeowner. It's going to be a good investment long term. So just to kind of clarify on when she's asking about prices reducing, they might go down a little bit, but they also might go up a little bit. They're not going to drop. We're not going to have an 08, 09 type scenario where it's a drastic drop um, that we saw in that time frame.
1: Right. Yeah. Even even the most, I would say, negative um, people or the negative outlooks by you know experts in the field their price decline is, you know, definitely less than 10%. Some people are saying, you know, like five, you know, four to 6% is kind of, I, that is someone that kind of has more of a worst case scenario or a l- little bit more of a pessimistic outlook on it. And then the optimistic outlook is obviously that we are unlikely to see, you know, anything above 6% or five or 6% next year. Um, it's probably going to be below 5% year over year appreciation. But again, when we're looking month to month, Like homes were more expensive in April than they are right now for sure. But are they going to be cheaper next April than they were this April? No one really knows that yet. There's a good chance that they're going to be less, but it's going to be, you know, a more modest amount, you know, likely less than 5% decline. If we do see that every month is kind of surprising people, um, people expected prices to fall further than we have so far. And that's just a testament to, there's still a lot of demand out there and we don't actually have a ton of inventory, relatively speaking we are at higher levels than we've been but that's coming from you know historically very very low levels for sure
0: yeah so the aspect of this when we're talking about actually selling the house in this market it is a very different scenario than it was 6 months ago and definitely a year ago as far as selling a house in this market there are steps that we need to take to ensure that we put yourself in a put you in a position to have success the most important aspect of that is Price. Price. It is most definitely price. Positioning your home properly in the market is key. Now, Sean, you want to walk us through what that looks like? Are we just looking at sold comps or are there other aspects that we're going to look at when we're talking about how to position a home?
1: Yeah. So we've pretty much shifted our um, kind of formula or our due diligence when pricing a listing from historically, you'd always look at sold comps and ideally you don't go back Super far, but six months was very common. Sometimes you'd need to go back 12 months in the past to get enough data points to help kind of build your, your new list price. Obviously the, the more similar the home is, and the more recent the sale was the more weight that you would give that specific comp now because we've had so move so much movement over the last six to nine months we aren't going back that far and to be honest we're not going much further than 30 days we're going to look at the last few comps that have sold maybe one or two and then what we're really going to look at is what's under contract what's pending and then what's active because what wasn't happening these last few years and it was happening in 19 but on a Um, We were kind of on the upswing in that market. Now we're kind of moving down is the active comps matter because that's your competition. So if you go and price your home and you are, above a handful of active comps in the neighborhood, then you're likely going to sit on the market. You need to kind of undercut your competition either by price or you need to be a better product, meaning it needs to be more updated, nicer, better presentation, that sort of thing. So those, the the pricing of that active comps is what we are putting a ton of emphasis on. Who's our competition? How long have they been on the market? The stuff that is going under contract, where they position in the market? And a lot of times it's not a surprise, but the ones that are going under contract are a combination of they're the nicer ones in the neighborhood
0: and they're the most aggressively priced. Right. For sure. I mean, it, you definitely don't want to overcomplicate this. This is a pretty simple concept. We want to make sure that when buyers are looking at houses in the area in our price point, that our listing pops up as the most attractive. And that's done through one, the price point and two presentations, yeah. right? How does um, and w- when we're listing that home, things that we're going to help you through and, and guide you through are staging that home, getting professional um, photos taken of that home to ensure that online it's going to be seen as well as it can possibly be seen it's going to be as attractive as it can possibly be which will then lead to more showings more showings lead to more offers and in this market it gives you a better shot at getting your house under contract quickly and at the highest dollar amount what we don't want to do is overprice the home can you jump into some of the reasons why overpricing can be such a negative especially in a market like this
1: yeah so overpricing is much easier to do now than what it's been the last few years. It it was pretty hard to overprice a home these last few years. Um, So now by doing that, you pretty much, the market's going to immediately respond to you and your price and they're not going to look at it and maybe you will get showings, but you're not going to get any offers. So likely what happens is you spend days on the market, weeks on the market, maybe a month, and then you do a price reduction and now you are chasing buyers that would have, may have been interested otherwise, but you almost have to overcorrect on your price. So a lot of times with a price reduction comes the sentiment of what's wrong or why are they reducing their price? And it kind of adds questions or doubt from a buyer's perspective. So it ends up, you end up with more days on market, even if you do a price reduction, trying for that higher price. And in this market, that is detrimental to the sales process before even in 2017 2018 2019 you could almost you know you could correct that mistake um because the way the market was moving the kind of how it was operating right now because higher interest rates there's just you know buyer sentiment is somewhat fearful or hesitant you can't really afford to overprice and then try to correct it because you'll end up you know, you're, you're going to chase them too far down and, and then you're going to be unhappy with the price. So pricing correctly out of the gate is super important. One of the that I wanted to touch on, on presentation, um, and this kind of can segue into one of our other questions. If you don't have anything else to add is not only presentation with staging and, you know, you know, dressing up the yard and, and, um, professional photos, but actually making some updates to the home prior to that, um, before again, these last few years and even pre 2020, updates mattered, you know, is just your standard stuff of, you know, what, what made sense to um, update to appeal to more buyers right now, a way to stand out when you are pricing your home. And if you're in the thick of, you know, you've got six or seven active comps that you're competing against, and you're in the thick of it on price, the way to stand out is to be a more updated home, higher end finish outs, or just, you know, less dated and just little stuff. I mean, even just replacing, you know, replacing a front door or repainting or um, landscaping is a big one. You know, that curb appeal when you walk into the house, if you can set yourself apart with that whether you're going to spend a few thousand dollars or twenty thousand dollars to make those upgrades, you will make a big difference when you actually go to market. If you're competing with homes that say
0: are a little bit more dated. For sure. The the aspects that are going to show up in that highlight reel, that highlight reel being the photos are going to show up online because that's where our buyers are first going to see the home, you know, ninety nine percent of the of the time in this market. We want to make sure that those highlight videos, those highlight um, photos look as good as possible. So that's why curb appeal can be such a huge difference, like the front door. NAR always talks about that being the the best bang for your buck when yeah. it comes to- Best adding- ROI is yeah. replacing your front door. <laughs> Indeed, which is, I'm not- we talked about this, we're not real sure how they uh, find that number. But uh, it, it is um, definitely something that can improve the curb appeal. And generally speaking, that's gonna be your first photo online. And if that doesn't look appealing, and people just move on to the next one. That's a buyer that could have been interested in your home that just moved on simply because we didn't do good do a good job of presenting it. So in a market like this, where it's much more of a balanced market, even um, working towards a seller's market, or sorry, a buyer's market, it's very important that that presentation. We do everything we can to make sure your home is seen in the best light possible.
1: Absolutely. And that, the other question that we got was from Kyle and his question was, what is the best bang for your buck on house projects for resale value, which is kind of what we were talking about. Um, when listing a home a little bit different than what Kyle's talking about, but you know, there's certain things that you want to do. Landscaping is something that I recommend to every seller, just cleaning it up, dressing it up, adding, you know, whether it's remulching or gravel, new plants, um, Getting the getting the grass in better shape, all those things are going to be helpful. On the house projects for resale value, I take it, Kyle's not necessarily talking about, you know, selling immediately, but it's what can I do in the home that's going to add value when I go sell
0: eventually. Right. Kyle, Kyle and Ellie are planning on living in the home for a while, so they're wanting to do upgrades now, but long-term, I want to make sure that it pays off. Yeah. Spend smart money.
1: So the two biggest ones um, and most obvious and kind of common ones are kitchens and primary bathrooms. Those are the two number one things that buyers are attracted to and will kind of push them over the edge when comparing two homes, mainly because that's where they spend, you know, the majority of their time in the home. Um, The kitchens are, are huge. It's a, A lot of times it's a space that you can see from multiple places with, you know, from the home living room, dining room, you're spending time in the kitchen. So spending money in the kitchen does go a long way and you can spend a lot of money in the kitchen. You can kind of do it in different um, different phases. It can be updating the appliances. It can be updating, you know, countertops, you know, cabinet poles, paint color. Um, light fixtures any of those things you don't have to gut the whole kitchen and completely redo it you can just make some cosmetic updates to you know to set that apart and then the primary bathroom is kind of the same you know flooring tile shower you know fixtures in there same thing you can if you're spending the money there there is certainly an ROI on that with buyers and sometimes It's all it's it's. I mean, to be honest, it's hard to quantify what that dollar return is, but it is very apparent when you look at the homes that are selling. And this was in the peak crazy twenty twenty one, and also you know what we're seeing now, as well as twenty eighteen. The homes that have updated, nice kitchens and primary bathrooms are the ones that are either consistently selling quicker
0: and for higher dollars. Without a doubt, for sure, if the the homes if they're not priced appropriately that are dated and have kitchens that need work or the whole house needs work, if you aren't significantly cheaper than the other houses in the neighborhood and when we're looking at the competition, it's not going to sell. Again, when we're look, most people are looking at houses online and if it's within their price point, they're going to go for something that pops off the, the page in the pictures when it comes to the kitchen, the front curb appeal all that good stuff. So the the kitchen, primary bathrooms, those are the biggest ones that are um, eye catchers when looking through an online portal and looking at houses. And then that translates to it showing better as well
1: yeah absolutely um we've got uh if you don't have any more on that we got a question from anna which is an interesting one and this is something that's coming up more and more now that we are in a marketplace where selling isn't super appealing right now a lot of obviously homeowners still have a good amount of equity but more importantly they have a really low interest rate so maybe it doesn't make sense to sell their home right now and even if it is an investment property and they want to hold on to it because they have a rate in the threes Um, is renting it out. And there's obviously your standard, rent it out with a long-term tenant, year-long lease, you know, and and go that route. But Anna's question is, what are some medium to short-term rental websites for travel nurses. So this is something specifically asking about travel nurses, which is um, something that's very popular right now because of the nurse shortage around the country. Um, we're seeing that, we've seen that firsthand with some of our clients, but Zach, I know you've done some
0: research on this. So yeah, can you talk about some of the options for you know how to secure those types of tenants? For sure. I'm actually looking to do this personally. Uh, closed on a house with some partners last week in Kyle and actually purchasing one more in Kyle next week. And we're going to try to, Uh, for both of these homes, rent them out to uh, as a medium term rental, Um, the ideal target audience are nurses, our travel nurses, um, just because there's a lot of them, a lot of hospitals in that area, there's a lot of travel nurses that are being moved there, and we can get a a slightly higher rate with the furnished home and a shorter um, lease term. So the idea there is where some of the pros with that is we're going to get a higher rent rate, right? If we're doing a 30 day or, you know, somewhere between 30 and 90 days. The other component is, is in most cases, uh, different city regulations, you don't need a permit for a 30 day or a longer lease. So you don't have to mess with any of the permitting, especially in city of Austin. So that's a big, big win. And most HOAs are not going to have restrictions that are going to be less than 30 days or for 30 days or longer. Um, some will, there's some that are, have like a minimum lease term, of 90, 90 days. But for the most part, you'll be able to avoid issues with HOAs when it comes to the medium term rentals. The other aspect, the the, kind of a con of this is you are going to have to furnish the home, right? So you're going to have to spend a a little bit more money to furnish the home. But at the end of the day, on the ROI, most of the time, you're going to make a higher cash flow number, a significantly higher cash flow number when it's all said and done by doing a medium term rental comparison to a standard long term rental. As far as where to find these tenants and in particular travel nurses. In the research that I've done so far in this process, the best resources that I've found have been TravelNurseHousing.com and FurnishedFinder.com. And I've spoken to a couple of nurses that I know as well, and they've uh, reinforced that when the travel nurses move in, they are looking, generally speaking, on Furnished Finder as well as on Facebook Marketplace um, for these short-term rentals or mid-term rental options. Uh, Definitely a great thing to look at, though, as an investor, if you have a rental property right now that is um, you have set up as a long term, you might want to look at it being a a medium term rental to see if you can increase that cash flow number if it can be increase your ROI overall on the on the property. Obviously, there's a little bit more work that goes into having to change over tenants throughout the year. But it uh, can definitely pay um, pay pay for itself by getting that. That higher interest uh, or that higher rent rate, sorry. Yeah,
1: the um, one thing I want to add on that, and Zach touched on it, short term rentals, obviously very popular. The Airbnb Verbo type of product is is short term is technically classified. At least on the City of Austin definition, is le- is thirty days or less. So if you were doing, a, if you are securing a tenant for 31 days or longer, which these travel nurses, a lot of times it's, it's actually weeks. So they do like eight week contracts or 12 week contracts and like that. So two to three months. And a lot of those, you know, they re up at least once, um, at least from my experience of my, um, the client that I've worked with on it. So if you're, if you're doing at least 30 days or 31 days, then you don't have to abide by all the you know rules and regulations that the city of Alston has on short-term rentals. You don't need a permit. You're not paying hotel occupancy tax. You, you kind of skirt all that stuff. So that's why, I mean, that's a big appeal because you're not having to kind of play that game. And it's hard to get a short-term rental permit. You can get denied pretty easily. A lot of neighborhoods have restrictions. Um, and one thing... As Zach mentioned too, HOAs are most likely going to be your biggest um, issue when working through that. So just read those HOA docs. Um, I know Zach said some of them have 90 days. I see six months a lot as well. So that's just something to be aware of, pay attention to at least find out about it ahead of time. And if you end up having to do kind of six month terms, that's also an option, even if it is a kind of a furnished rental, but what you don't want to do is furnish the place and get everything set up. And then the HOA shuts you down because you're doing, you know, 60 day leases and they don't allow anything less than six. Um, So just do your research on that and make sure if you're not an HOA, then you're really just beholden to the city regulations, which for the Austin and surrounding areas, 31 days or more, you would be in the clear on that.
0: Sure. Yeah, but definitely, If you're looking at ways to get into investing um and you're concerned about most places in austin or surrounding areas if you're just putting 20 25 down you're not going to be able to cash flow on a property with a regular long-term lease but this is a solution that can allow you to cash flow as well as um, be able to put yourself in a position to gain that equity that you're likely to get in austin's market
1: yeah and this is um, another play and in time where we're seeing higher interest rates so obviously if you're buying an investment property now versus two years ago Price is one factor, but the rate's higher, so your monthly payment's gonna be, uh, you know, significantly higher than it was just a few years ago. So this is a way to kind of recapture some of that increase, you know, carrying cost. Not to mention that long-term rental rates are going up significantly as well, and they will continue to do so um, because those numbers just get passed down to renters. So we're gonna see quite a bit of rent growth, but the short-term furnished lease option is going to give you a better monthly rate Obviously, a little bit more management, a little bit more hands on than a long term tenant, but um, good option for people that are looking for, you know, looking for that monthly cash flow.
0: 100%. All right, we'll move on to the next one. My friend Mick asks, big businesses like Zillow tried and failed with rental investments. How can mom and pop investors avoid those mistakes?
1: So this is an interesting one. Um, And if you aren't familiar, Zillow and um, there's companies like Orchard and Opendoor, there's a handful out there that um, they're referred to as iBuyers. They're basically large um, tech companies institution- with you know, institutional money that are buying investment properties in very large quantities. So Opendoor was doing a lot of that in Austin um, through programs that they have of, you know, they basically buy it from a seller. So that seller can then go buy another property. And then once that seller moves out, they turn around and sell it. So they're basically kind of the middleman. They don't intend to hold any of these properties long-term. They're not acquiring them for um, for rental. It's it's to make money basically on the transaction, help out the seller who's looking to to move up and couldn't buy a new house without selling the first one. Um, and there are a lot that, um, there are other companies like homesforrent.com, which I think is the largest um, single family property owner in the country. And that is what they do. They buy homes, thousands and thousands of homes and rent them out. It's the, the Zillow model was not the intent was not to hold them long term, but they still got burned pretty good because they were buying properties based on a short term basis, trying to turn around and sell it, and sell them for, I would assume a gain, but they were not even breaking even in a lot of cases. They were losing money. And a part of that is they were not they were kind of overpaying on the front end but they also were trying to negotiate these deals with sellers because that's the advantage to say hey, you sell to us we're quick and easy we can give you you know we'll close cash in 10 days so it's appealing to the seller but sellers in Austin also were familiar with the market they knew what stuff was going for they knew what stuff was worth so they were less likely to come off of you know market value significantly and Zillow's you know was kind of got it stuck with, <laughs> was stuck with overpaying, not even overpaying. They were, they were probably paying under market a little bit, but it wasn't enough to where they turned around and tried to sell it and they weren't losing money. It was, there are, you can do your own research, but there's statistics out there on people that were tracking what Zillow and Open Door were buying homes for and then what they were selling them for. And I think it was like more than half of the homes they were selling for less than what they paid for them. And this is hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, in, in assets, if not, you know, billions of dollars in, in rent homes that they were
0: doing this for and it was I had multiple people during uh twenty twenty one and the beginning of this year, twenty twenty two, where it was still the the crazy competitive scenario that um asked if they should look at a Zillow offer and they should show me what the number was on their house rather than selling it with me and I told them take it. <laughs> because yeah. Because there's there's no way I can get you that number. There's multiple times that like their algorithm, their process that they used was just so vague that that they weren't actually looking at the properties and they were offering numbers. Yeah, and
1: I actually had kind of, a client like that as well where we ran comps and I kind of, you know, when I'm listing a property, I will give them the kind of the worst case ideal and kind of like that dream number and give you the range where we think we're gonna land. And I don't, I think this one was open door, I don't remember, but the, they did the same thing. They, they got an offer from them and it was like $25,000 over the dream number that I gave them, which in the market, I think we probably got pretty close to that to the dream number, but certainly not what they ended up getting. And it was a, you know, smooth, clean deal. And a lot of times there's a little bit of a bait and switch of they give them this offer online, then they come inspect the property and look at it. And then they take quite a bit off of that, but they went through that process and they didn't come off their number. And it was, it seemed too good to be true. And they,
0: they, my clients did pretty well with it. On the flip side of that, one of the strategies that I was employing last year and then the beginning of this year was trying to find the resales of those Zillow and those open doors because they, did the exact opposite of what we were just describing as far as presenting the home and pricing it appropriately. They were pricing it way above market value because they purchased it for too high. And then after, you know, two months of being on the market when it was the only house on the market that or on the market that had didn't sell the first weekend, we were able to negotiate that price down. So I was able to help a few people get in to homes during that time frame that were sold by Zillow and open door simply because they had positioned it so improperly out of the gates and it wasn't a multiple offer situation, which back then was hard to come. Yeah, (laughs) rare. And
1: to kind of come back to the question of how to avoid some of those mistakes, the biggest one, in my opinion, and this is true, even if you're a, you know, an individual, but a big time investor and you're investing in single family homes in multiple markets, the more broad that you are and the more properties that you have, you're likely to, you know make some mistakes and you know misstep on on valuations and that sort of thing residential real estate is hyper local you know if you are if you are investing in the city of austin or the surrounding area you know that would be a good focus but is even kind of broad there's i know investors that they will only buy property in one zip code or one neighborhood and they focus on that because they know that neighborhood in and out they know every single home that sells what the finish outs in all those homes like they get really dialed in on that specific neighborhood. And they're likely going to be much better at valuing those properties when they do come to the market and negotiating those things because they they're very familiar. And there's not very many that are that focused. But in general, residential real estate is very local. So when you are Zillow and you're buying in 28 different markets and, you know, deploying a billion dollars to do so using an algorithm, you can have some rounding errors that are going to cost you a lot of money. And if, you know, when they were buying, they weren't buying really expensive homes. They're buying homes between, you know, three and $500,000. So if they're off by 15, 20 grand, that's going to hurt them. And that's essentially what they're going to lose when they go to sell it in a market where, you know, most buyers are represented with a real estate agent who is a market expert in their area or the sub market and can look at that and say, no, that's, you know, I've ran the, the comps, this property, this, these homes are very similar. They sold for X, Y, and Z, and that's overpriced by 25 grand. And you can use that. And if, when that's the case, it's just not going to sell like in right. Zach's case. So then you have Zach bring his buyer there. They run the comps. They know what it's worth. They make an offer. And obviously Zillow can, they, they have, the, they have the funds to lose a little bit of money, so they were selling them at a loss um, when they were trying to get out of certain markets. But it's, I would say it's probably harder to make the same mistakes as Zillow as an individual investor than, um, than it is not to. Um, if, you're, if you're doing this on an individual level, your level you're going to have the counsel of your, your real estate agent who's going to be running comms, showing you data points in that specific neighborhood, showing you what it sold for the last time it sold, um, kind of the potential in the neighborhood. And you're much less likely to kind of overshoot by a number because you're, you know, you're not taking this broad brush approach. So sure. definitely, um, you know, that that idea is, is um, not something that we see happen with individual investors. It's going to be more Buy it right. And then, you know, your hold period is a big one. Zillow and open door, they were holding these properties for a very short amount of time, which is obviously hard to, you know, hard to navigate when you are trying to turn a
0: profit on it. For sure. The other aspect is they were only using the wholesale strategy, right? They were trying to purchase properties and then just flip them around and make the margin on what they thought they got the deal on with the initial purchase. And there was also a speculative component to that where they were anticipating home prices to continue to increase at a ridiculous rate, um, which we finally have seen slow down. So that was part of why they lost as well. So when you're working with us as agents, and we're going through this process, we're looking at the investment strategy for you. We're looking at more than just a purchase price. We're looking at what your options are, as far as what you're going to be able to rent it out for. We can look at the different renting options, right? We just talked about uh, medium term and short term rentals, as well as the regular long term rentals. But we want to make sure that those numbers make sense. And that we also have multiple exit plans. Like we talked, you just talked about your hold period, the reality is, is if you're going to buy something in Austin, and you are in a position where you can hold it and handle some vacancy throughout that frame for, for five years or so, you're going to have a really nice return on that property, regardless of when you purchase it, if, whether you bought right at the top at 20 in 2022, at the in April or so, if you're holding that thing for five years, I don't see any scenario in which you don't have a really nice return for five years. So we want to make sure that you have um, short term and long term Plans and goals with that property that give you flexibility to ensure that no matter what the market conditions are, that you're going to be able to at least have a, a close to um, a positive cash flow, maybe slightly under, but you're able to hold on to that property and, and get it to what you really want, which is a long term gain.
1: Yeah, that's all, all good information. Um, we've got, it looks like we've got one or two more. Um, we're going to move on to Miranda. She said, I recently heard someone talk about Austin market being as, or the, about the Austin market being as stratified. What does that mean, and is Austin a stratified
0: market? So I actually had to Google this one. I would never heard the term stratified market before. Uh, but the concept of a stratified market is it's neither a buyer or seller's market when we look at the whole thing. There's aspects of within that market that some areas are buyers' markets and in some areas are sellers' markets as far as you know different neighborhoods and things along those lines. I think that's definitely the case in Austin. I think there's some areas that are seeing a little bit of price decrease um, more so than other places. I think across the board, it's much more of a buyer's market than it has been for sure. It's definitely, I don't think there's an area in town where you would say, yeah, this is definitely a super hot seller's market. Right. Um, but I think that there are some areas more than others that have seen a little bit of price depreciation. I think, for example, I think areas that were growing quickly, that there's a lot of like land around them and not a lot of development, like some areas in Flugerville, like the new communities that were selling at very high numbers. Um, the resale on those has definitely been a lot less than what the initial purchase price was on a few of those if you buy within the last year or so. I think eventually that will come right back up and it's not going to be a, a huge loss. But uh, when you're looking at places that don't have the type of density that you have, like in Austin, like in the city of Austin, we're not really seeing price decreases at all. I mean, we, we know year over year, we've talked about this. We're at a 5% increase right now and likely are going to have somewhere in that ballpark for our median home price for the whole year over year. But uh, places that are more on the outskirts and are growing areas, and you just have these brand new developments that are surrounded by fields and not, you know, not inside the city. Those ones we've seen a little bit more become uh, much more of a buyer's market rather than a a seller's market.
1: Yeah. And one thing that I'll add to that, um, the kind of move from a seller's market that we were in to a buyer's market that we're heading to, And this is kind of real estate agent speak or industry speak of months of inventory and we've talked about how you know how that's quantified but the short answer is basically how many months would it take at the current buyer demand level to absorb the existing inventory so when it's two and a half months that means if no new listings came on the market, at the pace of which buyers are buying homes, it would take two and a half months for those for everything to be purchased. Well, NAR, the National Association of Realtors, has a general statistic of six months of inventory as a balanced market. That's neither a buyer's market or a seller's market. A lot of people in the industry don't really agree with that number, but something that's more important now of what we're experiencing, we got down to below one month of inventory. We were, I think, 0.6 in the city of Austin, um, a half a month inventory at the, I think, the lowest point, and now we're at 2.7, so we are kind of moving up in that direction. If six is the balanced market, it we're kind of already feel like we're in a buyer's market. And the takeaway there is, it's really when the transition happens. So we are we are going from a seller's market to a buyer's market. So it feels like a buyer's market all the way there. We don't have to wait to get to six, be like, okay, we're officially in a balanced market. And then seven months of inventory is a buyer's market. Is as, as soon as you kind of bounce off that bottom and you're headed towards, you know, four months of inventory or five months of inventory, that's really when the shift is happening. It is now a buyer's market. And then the same thing, if we get to six months of inventory, And then it starts to come down, it's gonna flip to a seller's market well before we're at two months of inventory. It's gonna feel like a seller's market as we're kind of gobbling up that inventory on the way down. So the right now to Zach's point, it kind of depends on where you're at. If you're in the you know, the outskirts outside of the city of Austin, you know, kind of on the periphery of, of the Kyle Buda, Pflugerville, Manor, even like Hutto and Taylor, those areas, like those are going to be a little bit more volatile than say central Austin is. Um, When you're in central Austin, there's not a whole lot of new development going on, certainly not, you know, adding to the, the supply. So it's going to, the price, you know, decline of the, price movement is going to be much slower, a little bit more lethargic than some of those other areas where you have a either an influx in supply or just not a ton of demand in those areas. Central Austin or Austin in general, you're going to have higher levels of demand.
0: Most definitely. All right. We got one more question here. This is from Colby. Do you feel the market will rebound enough that it's more profitable to keep your home rather than sell your property? So short answer Yes. Yes.
1: <laughs> Most definitely. So keep, keep, if you keep it long enough, you'll never lose money. I mean, that's the, Warren Buffett says you only lose money when you sell.
0: Yeah. So just don't sell it. What would know? see now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a, a whole bunch of layers that we can dive into with this question. Um, first of all, it, a lot of it depends on what your goals are. Now, one of the aspects of, um, Colby is a client of mine, so I know that she purchased her home three years ago um, and has a nice chunk of equity in that home. Uh, The tone of the question obviously makes it sound like we're concerned about should I sell so I don't lose money because prices are going to go down. I think we've talked about that enough.
1: Yeah, which is a fair, fair question. And that the short answer is it's too hard to time the market. No one really knows. If you sell your house today, Are you going to get a higher price than you will in December? Are you going to get a higher price today than you would in February or next April? No one really knows. We can kind of crunch those numbers, but real estate is kind of hard to predict on such a short term basis. The question would be if you sell this October or this November versus next November versus November of 2024. It's much easier to say like there's a good chance, you know, that you will continue to see equity growth next year. Probably going to be based on you know a lot of people's opinion. It's going to be relatively flat. So maybe you sell it for the same price next November as you would this November, and you own it for a whole extra year. So it would make sense to sell this year and take those take that money elsewhere, or whatever. But if you are not motivated to sell right now, and you have the ability to hold it, whether you're occupying it or renting it out, then like Zach said earlier, if you own this home three or four years from now, then yeah, you're likely definitely
0: going to have more equity right. than you will today. And the answer to questions like this always is it depends, right? right? It depends on what your goals are. Now, what you're going to do with this money is a huge aspect of whether or not it makes sense to sell this house. So if we're looking at using those funds and just putting it in a savings account, definitely don't sell your home. Like, keep, hold on to that money. If, you're, if a goal of yours is to get into um, a different area of town, into a higher price point, and you want to use these funds to move into... Um, a a different area of town, that's something we can look at, but you have to be willing to take on a much bigger payment. Because I know in Colby's scenario, and a a ton of people in Austin are in the same scenario. They bought in 2017, 2018, 2019. They have a ton of equity in their house, but they have a really low interest rate right now. And their payment is, uh, you know, attractive. It's a, a payment that's just not achievable in today's market. So if you want to make that move, this is definitely a great time to do it. Because it's not going to get cheaper long term, right? Like, maybe over the next month or so, there might be like, it might be a little lower than it is right now, but it's not going to be a substantial decrease. But you'll be paying a much higher rate, and your payment will jump up significantly. So if you're willing to take on that bigger payment, now is a good time to make that move up. Uh, you just have to be willing to handle that that larger additional monthly payment. Do you have anything to add on that concept?
1: Yeah, the idea, the interest rates thing is uh, obviously probably the thing that's dominating the the news cycle, and also it's it's what's affecting our industry more than anything else right now. I mean, buyer demand is down specifically because interest rates have moved up so so quickly in such a short amount, or so much in such a short amount of time. And the thing about that is, if you are the, we talked about this yesterday. The two questions that I ask every buyer that's thinking about buying is, at the price point and the interest rate that a lender is quoting you, are you comfortable with that price? And if the answer is yes, like your monthly payment, if you're comfortable with that monthly payment, whatever that may be, get to a point to where you're comfortable. And then the second question is, do you are you comfortable and are you kind of willing and able or plan to own the home for at least four to five years? And if the answer on both of those is yes, then you can feel good about buying because the interest rate, if it goes up, well, then you have a lower rate than what the market is offering. And if it goes down, obviously, it's got to move down more than just a little bit. But if it moves down significantly, then you could refinance and your payment's going to reduce. And if it stays the same, it stays the same. And that's, what, you know, that's why the first question is, are you comfortable with the payment? If it does not change and you can't refi to a lower amount, are you comfortable with that? And if that answer is yes, you can move on to the next one, which is, you know, what's your ownership plan, like timeline? Are you going to own it four or five years? You protect yourself from... If we see a five or call it a 10% price decline over the next 12 months, but you own it for four or five years, we're now talking about 2025, 2026, 2027. Like Once you get to that time frame, if we saw a 10% decline in 2023, you have three years, four more years for that price to move back up and get above where you purchased it, which is if you look historically... home prices drop, you know, there is a rebound and you're just, the longer the ownership period is, the better off you're going to be on recapturing that. If you do time it poorly and you buy it and then prices drop, but timing the market is very difficult. It's almost impossible to do on purpose. So buy when the, the factors make sense for you, which is, do you like your, are you comfortable with your monthly payment and you plan to own it longer term in a market that is, you know, not as, um, you know, volatile as it is right now in terms of interest rates and just sentiment and the overall economy, that four to five window can be a little bit shorter. It can be, you know, do you plan to own own it for three years? And that's a healthy enough runway to to kind of circumvent any issues. But right now we are extending that a little bit of, you know, you certainly put yourself in a much better position if your plan is to own it for five years or more.
0: For sure. Another aspect of this question, I, I think there's kind of an underlying question here that Colby might be asking, should I take my money out of Austin's market hold that money, and then re-enter at another time. Yeah, uh, yeah
1: that comes down to timing of the market. Right, is... right,
0: right. We don't, want to, we don't want to time the market. But at the end of the day... When well, we do, we just can't. We, <laughs> right, right, right. We, don't, we don't want to rely <laughs> we love on timing time the market. We don't want to rely very on trying to, to do. time it perfectly because uh, that's just a guessing game. We're, we're not putting ourselves in a good position if we're trying to play that game because we're going to miss it most of the time when we try to do that. Yeah. But long-term, I want to be in Austin's market. And also long-term, it's not going to be cheaper to get in to a home in Austin. right? Like Maybe in the next year, six months, it might be a little cheaper than it is today. I think it's probably going to be pretty much the same or slightly higher than where we're at today. But we'll see what happens in in the months to come. But now there is opportunity to buy. There's more homes available. And we have a little bit more negotiating power on the buy side. And yes, the interest rate is a component of it. But if we're gonna reinvest that money, we're gonna put ourselves in a position where we're locking in that price and then we give ourselves flexibility when it comes to refinancing if the prices go down or sorry, if interest rates go down. And then as we have get more appreciation on the higher price point when we do the move up program, we're gonna be getting a bigger return on our investment once prices do start to continue to tick up, where we'll we see the you know, that five to ten percent increase a year that I think is likely when interest rates start to um, start to come down eventually whenever that happens I think we both believe that there's a whole bunch of pent-up demand that isn't eliminated from this market It's just waiting to figure out what interest rates are going to do and once they start to tick down It's going to be the same wave that we had earlier a buyers coming in the market It's gonna be competitive again, and it's gonna be hard to get into a home, but now There are fewer mar- buyers. We have strengthened this this market as as a buyer and more options. So you just have to look at all the, the whole picture. And if the time, it makes sense for you to do it now. Now's a good time to sell and buy and stay in Austin's market. I wouldn't want to take my money out of Austin's market long term, though.
1: Yeah. And right now, something that we have not been able to do the last few years is basically be a contingent buyer. You can put a property under contract to purchase. And that offer that contract is contingent on you selling your home or the, the you know, another property. So that was not existent before because as a buyer that wasn't a competitive offer a seller would move on to the next one that wasn't contingent but now sellers are willing to work with that they're willing to put their house under contract on the contingent you know that the buyer has to sell their property and then you can kind of secure that thing you know secure the property where you want to go at a price that you're comfortable with and all that and then list your home and get that sold And so that's another option too is you kind of know what you're getting into where these last few years it's been really difficult where a seller would almost have to sell first before they buy, which is very stressful. Cause they would sell, get a home under contract, and now they feel like they're under the gun. They gotta find something. They gotta win a multiple offer situation to so they don't end up in, you know, interim housing or something. So that is another thing that is easier for buy or for sellers to kind of navigate that move up or even, you know, that lateral move. But it's also it allows us to kind of take our time and we can kind of go through the process at a more normal pace than the
0: the crazy race that it was the last few years without a doubt without a doubt all right i think that wraps up all of our questions anything to add uh before we move on no i think this was great these are great questions keep them coming awesome really appreciate you guys sending the questions as always we are here to help you achieve your wealth dreams through real estate uh we both would love to help you out so feel free to to reach out to us we have our contact information in the show notes And uh, also feel free to send us more questions. These were great today and uh, really enjoyed answering these questions. We'd love to answer more.
1: Thank you, guys. See you next time. Awesome. Have a great day.